0: Welcome to the 153rd installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's audio podcast on family farming, sustainable agriculture, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. The agricultural system that dominates the Midwest may be highly productive, but it's also extremely inefficient. How can that be? Well, one of the reasons this production system is so inefficient is that it relies on raising a few annual summer crops, which cover the land only a few months out of the year. This means for eight months or more the land lacks any living roots or green ground cover, creating a long period of time called the brown season. During this long lifeless brown period, the land is particularly vulnerable to erosion and precipitation runs off the land, carrying with it fertilizers and other chemicals that were not used during the growing season. Don Wise says such a system is not only wasteful, but doesn't utilize agriculture's ability to provide key ecosystem services, such as keeping pollutants out of the water, building soil health, sequestering greenhouse gases, and providing wildlife habitat. It also limits economic options for farmers, says Wise, a professor in the University of Minnesota's Department of Agronomy and Plant Genetics, and the co-director of the Center for Integrated Natural Resources and Agricultural Management. Wise is helping lead up an effort to make Minnesota agriculture more efficient environmentally and economically. Called the Forever Green Initiative, This multifaceted effort is based on the idea that we need to create farming systems that rely on covering the land 12 months out of the year. Wise and other scientists at the U of M are working to figure out how soil friendly crops like pennycress, intermediate wheatgrass, and camelina can be integrated into the current corn-soybean rotation. For example, pennycress can be seeded after corn or soybeans are harvested in the fall. It provides crucial protection for soil during the fall, winter, and spring and produces high-value oil and protein meal from unused fertilizer and water that would otherwise be wasted. Pennycress, a native of Eurasia and a member of the mustard family, also suppresses weed growth without the use of herbicides and supports honeybees and other pollinators. But Wise and his colleagues realize that alternative crops like pennycress will never catch on unless farmers find them profitable to raise. That's why the Forever Green initiative is not only using plant breeding to develop gene lines that do well in the harsh climate of the upper Midwest, but is also examining how to make certain crops more useful as sources of food, feed, fuel, and other products. In other words, how can the market value match the environmental value of these crops? One way this is being done is through the development of incubators across the state that would coordinate the technological, economic, and even policy innovations needed to make alternative crops a consistent part of the farming picture. These incubators, which are called land labs, would help overcome the chicken or the egg barriers that often plague innovations in agriculture. What incentives do farmers have to plant a new crop if there's no market for it? And even if there is a market, What if there are no processing and transportation systems available to get the product from the field to the end user? Land labs are an attempt to coordinate all of these steps in a way that farmers and other links in the chain aren't taking on all the initial risk of trying something innovative. All of this requires laboratory equipment, field plots, scientists, graduate students, and lots of trial and error. Wise knows this from experience. Since the 1970s he has worked to develop a perennial ryegrass industry for farmers in northwest Minnesota who are looking for a way to diversify. Developing this system required intense plant breeding, as well as the creation of a propagation and processing infrastructure. That's why Forever Green will require consistent funding over a number of years if it is to be successful. That means an investment of public dollars. During the past few years, the Land Stewardship Project has been working with various allies at the Minnesota Legislature to procure consistent financial support for Forever Green. Weiss recently talked to me about various aspects of the initiative. He started out talking about why the current farming system that predominates is inefficient and why it's so important to add functional diversity to the landscape.
1: We just don't think the current system efficient, right? If you uh, explore all of the inputs and outputs from uh, the current agricultural system, you find that there's a lot of waste, you know, in terms of soil erosion, you're losing soil. That's not very efficient, right? Right. You're moving uh, uh, soil off the land. and. and uh, moving it into rivers and streams. It's not very efficient in a a classical annual cropping system. You lose all of those services and basically we're saying designing agricultural systems that produce those ecosystem services is increasing the efficiency. You know it reduces the input of herbicides, fertilizer, so that's the context in which we're presenting, in terms of uh, of efficiency, recycling nutrients rather than running them down the river. We we know that as you add uh, functional diversity to to, to the landscape, uh, the systems are are more are, are more efficient in terms of recycling nutrients, uh, better use of uh, of the water, utilizing the water that's there to uh, to produce biomass rather than putting in the tie line and down, down the stream. I, I don't think this is necessarily new information. I think it's information that we've had for a long period of time. The issue is how, how do you make these systems adaptable by farmers? So I think that that's what's key about this program, is that um, we're trying to de- design systems that are profitable uh, for the farmer, uh, and producing products that are of value to uh, to consumers right now, as you well know, if you stick with the crops that we have that are all winter are, are all summer annuals, you won't be able to produce those ecosystem services, but they're highly productive. But if you want an efficient more efficient system, one that produces these ecosystem services. We have, to d- we have to fund the development of a different type of plant. It has to be a different type of plant. Mm-hmm. For us, it has to be a winter annual or a perennial. If it's, if it's just an annual, uh, you, you still have you know, a long period of, of brown on the landscape. and As long as you have that, it's susceptible to erosion, it's sub- susceptible to nitrate and nitrogen loss. So you have to have something there to cover. And, and the only thing that I can come up with would be winter annuals and perennials. And, and I guess what I've learned over the years, if, if you can create a system that has an economic pull, the chances of it being uh, adopted are, are really pretty high. That concept that if you want to change the landscape, give farmers an economic opportunity to, to, to change the landscape.
0: Wise described the basic science that's needed to make alternative crops agronomically and economically viable in the upper Midwest.
1: And the other big change that's occurred is the genetic technology, or the technology to study plant genomes Mm -hmm. has changed dramatically. For example, uh, we just sequenced the genome for Pentecrest, so we can now run a breeding program and, and uh, determine whether or not when we make the crosses whether or not the appropriate alleles are being incorporated into that germplasm which speeds things up dramatically. It's, it's technology that is deeper than just biotechnology or GMOs. It, it basically is designed to identify the genes that, that give rise to various traits mm-hmm. in living organisms, right? And then you know, GMOs, genetic modified organisms, you can come in and identify that gene and modify it. Well, but you don't have to. You can look for different forms of it, make crosses, and just select for that one. And, you know, we put millions millions of dollars in the human genome, and it took a decade. We sequenced the genome in pennycress in a, just a few months for $75,000. That's how that world has changed. So, so now we know an awful lot about Pentecrest. We'll be able to manipulate dormancy, oil content, flowering, and we can do it in a way that is as efficient or more efficient than the major crops, which makes these alternative crops really viable. Five years ago it was just a joke. Today um, we have tools that will allow us to develop these alternative crops, uh, at a very rapid pace. But our problem is we don't have any money. We patch everything together. So we're arguing that there needs to be a public investment to bring this material along. And in this world, obviously, over time, the, the private sector will get more involved. We believe that the public sector should take this early risk in the same way the public sector took the initial risk on soybeans, corn, wheat, and barley. So we've brought it far enough along that I can look most anyone in the eye and say these projects are worthy of an investment. I can't tell you which ones are going to fail, which ones are going to be successful, but here's a core of six or seven that are worthy of additional investment for the next five years. Um, but what do we need? We need post-docs and graduate students mm-hmm. to actually do the work. Because we have breeders that can advise that can advise these folks, but you need resources that creates the infrastructure you know to buy the time in the greenhouses to buy capacity at the branch stations uh, people to go out and plant and, and harvest <laughs> doesn't sound like a big deal, but mm-hmm. it, you know, it, is. it takes a lot of, lot of a lot, a of, lot hands. of hands yeah. so we're to the point where we can actually we actually have those components out there but It's hard to get the idea across to the people that you need the investment in the development of better germplasm, better traits, and it's a difficult thing to get across.
0: Wise provided a glimpse at how the Land Lab Incubator concept can work. So, you know, what's the Land
1: Lab? It's basically figuring out how in the hell to put the pieces together Mm -hmm. to get production and processing in place. We don't really talk about it, but my land lab team that's in place is in Rosalink and Woods County. We didn't call it a land lab, but working with those guys to develop prenatal rodgrass and to develop that uh, that uh, enterprise it yeah. you know, was an example of a land lab. That's, that's what I'm doing right now. In each one of these, I'm trying to make everything arrive at the same damn time. Let, let me give you an example. Uh, let's take intermediate wheatgrass. So we have our team here, and it, it includes the Land Institute. It includes some genetic group, group in Kansas State, a group at Logan, Utah, and our genetics group here at the University of Minnesota. So there's the plant development part, but then we also have our in-use team. Uh, which is made up of five faculty in food science and a division at General Mills and the new food group at Patagonia in California. Mm -hmm. And they want to build their their food program off of intermediate wheatgrass. So here I sat, organizing and working with our plant breeders and, and also doing the agronomic work, looking at ecosystem services, productivity, but the other half of the project is in use, trying to figure out what uses you can make of the intermediate grass Mm -hmm. seed. So we have teams operating out of food science that are working with brewers, whiskey makers, food processors, and we got two big partners, Patagonia and General Mills. The information on the food end gets fed fed back into the breeding end, Mm -hmm. so you're breeding the grain for, uh, for an end use. Now here we go, chicken and egg. I planted 120 acres of interme- intermediate wheat at Rosemont on behalf of Patagonia, just so that they can get enough seed to evaluate the grain for use in, in, their, in their food products. Now they're coming back to us and saying, our projections are this. This is how much seed we're going to to need to move this program forward. <laughs> And all at once now in my lap is the, the need to produce thousands of acres of intermediate, wheat, intermediate wheatgrass. So what am I doing? I'm calling my buddies in Rosso and Lake of the Woods counties, the guys that grow the seed off of the varieties of ryegrass that we have produced, asking them whether or not they would be willing to take on intermediate wheatgrass. The other option is just... Turning that seed loose out to farmers, right? But then how do you gather all that seed up and to a spot, process it and get it? So I've decided to keep it narrow and get the farmers in, in Rosalit and Lake of the Woods counties to to produce it and maybe give them the opportunity to actually then contract with other farmers across the Midwest to produce that uh, to produce that seed. But they're already set up to grow it, process it, and the only piece that they don't have is the dehuller. So they may have to add that to that, that to the system here I sat with each of these sixteen you know trying to trying to keep both ends the of the system moving forward, and you can't have one end without the other and what we're finding is that uh, that the 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 in demand really puts the most pressure in the program once you get people interested how how do you how do you get the supply out there for them to uh, to actually evaluate and incorporate it into real food products.
0: Finally, Wise took me through an example of how a crop like pennycress could be integrated into a corn-soybean system and the efficiencies it could help produce.
1: So the pennycress, you know, is designed not to displace corn and soybeans. So there's going to be a demand for corn and soybeans for the near future, right? So if we want to produce an agricultural system that does, in fact, have a higher level of efficiency, produces more ecosystem services. The pentacrass and and camelina are designed to put roots in the soil during the period of time where corn and soybeans are absent on the landscape. So, what's the efficiencies? We do not fertilize camelina uh, or the pentacrass. So, they're basically producing a yield based on the nutrient reserve that's there with a focus on nitrate-nitrogen. If you don't capture it, it's gone. So in terms of the cycle, the nutrient cycle is going to be picking that up, and it's going to be incorporated into plant material, including seed that will be removed from the field. So it will be some of that nitrate-nitrogen that, nitrogen that will be moved in the harvesting crop. But most of the potassium and phosphorus is going to remain on that landscape as the pentacrest deteriorates on, on the surface. All right, so what did we gain? We, we captured energy that would not have been captured if the pentacrest wasn't there. It would, would have been energy that was not incorporated into the food system. It also increased the efficiency of water use. So if the pentacrest wasn't there, the water on that landscape would have evaporated. In the case where the pentacress is it's there, that more of that water is being taken up and turned into biomass, and then the water being transpired off of that landscape. So we would then come in after the pentacress is harvested and no-till plant into that stubble, which basically reduces herbicide input because the the pentacress is suppressing all of the weeds, and the weeds that come after the 1st of June is really quite limited. We're, we're breeding for lions that you would harvest in the first week in June. So, so you're within the window of planting soybeans. And the other way would be to relay crop, cameleon or pentacress, into, into that system. So you would have the pentacress growing, and you could come in and plant the soybeans the second week in May, or the first week in May allow the two to develop together mm-hmm. and then harvest the harvest the penny for seed, releasing the soybeans so it 's going to reduce tillage it 's going to reduce herbicide input you 're capturing more energy, recycling nutrients, reducing herbicide input, and then you would plant soybeans into into in, into that system with less herbicide <laughs> inputs, and then harvest it in, in, in september and there's market for that seed and we would hope that over the next five years we would be able to modify that plant so the protein could be fed right now we found the genes that control the production of glucosinolates glucosinolates in in, in the pentacrass and have lines now where the glucosinolate is not incorporated in the seed which would make that seed we position that seed so it can be used as feed for livestock feed in a few years we'll have value in the protein and value in the oil and then you're going to ask me well how much is it worth I, I, don't, I don't know but we can put numbers on it so we would know how much we'd have to get for it mm-hmm. to, make the, to, to make the system run so the, the figures that we've been using for the for the pentacrest seed in our models has been half the value of soybeans and that's how we've been positioned and you know that's it. Yes. the whole idea is come up with plant materials that have an economic pull for changing the landscape and fill uh, the brown I mean, wow. that story is and the fact that uh, none of those things are going to happen unless there is a public investment in developing that material. No one else is going to do it at this stage no these are these are not native plants but uh, they are certainly a step forward in in, in producing those ecosystem services and the idea that uh, agriculture is 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 not natural i don't care what system it is ladies and gentlemen it's a huge human footprint but we might be able to modify that footprint in a way that makes the, the system more efficient more environmentally sound
0: For information on Forever Green, see www.landstewardshipproject.org and see our April 16, 2014 blog on the initiative. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore@landstewardshipproject.org at landstewardshipproject.org or you can call 612-722-6377. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members. Who make initiatives such as this podcast possible? If you're not a member, visit Land Stewardship Project.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening.